Martini Bar. This is Jerry McCarty here with the lovely Kelly Maroney. Hello, Kelly. Take the gum out of your mouth. <laughs> Hello, Jerry. Busted. <laughs> and we are back at the Sportsman's Lodge with a special guest, the great Carl Gottlieb. Carl, thank you for being here. Always a pleasure, and it's a beautiful day here in Southern California. That's right, and it is a beautiful day, and we Carl is here again, and I'll just give the brief... Reader's Digest version of, of Carl's career. As, as I said at lunch, he has the career that I would have loved to have. Is, I mean, known as an Emmy Award-winning writer, director, actor, but the fun thing is he's acted in just every show from the 70s, but most famous for green screenwriter on Jaws, The Jerk, caveman and also smothers brothers and lots of great stuff but carl is great at stories that's don't want to build you up too high but but i just love hearing about the old old time stories from carl gottlieb so uh we were talking about uh, a show that i discovered which was uh in carl correct corrected me. It was Music Scene, right? Was that the name of it? It was Music Scene. Just tell everybody a little bit about that show, which I don't think there's a show like that anymore. No, Music Scene was quite the anomaly. ABC, which was at that time the third network, they were like Fox was when Fox started. They were kind of struggling because CBS and NBC were the giants, and they wanted to be in the three-network universe. And they wanted to do uh, pop music because that was coming back. It was uh, all the variety shows, including the Smothers Brothers, would have the Beatles or the Who or, you know, important music acts. So the notion was for ABC to do a top of the pops kind of a show, always, always big, going back to radio days. And they would have a tie-in with Billboard to do the Billboard chart, top 100, you know, top acts, top 10 Billboard acts, and the hook for the show was that the acts themselves would be on television, not not somebody singing their songs, but if Jefferson Airplane had the top hit that week, uh, then Jefferson Airplane would be on. If uh, Buck Owens was on the top of the country music charts, Buck Owens would be on. Janis Joplin, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, uh, Chuck Berry, uh, just a lot of great acts that would do the show, and they had a resident company of zanies, you know, kind of like the Laugh-In crew uh, that included Lily Tomlin in her first network television appearance before Laugh-In, and David Steinberg and Larry Hankin and um, a few others whose fame did not last. And we did the show with comedy and, you know, sketch comedy and songs and and had a wonderful time. It is great. And Lily Tomlin from Detroit, Michigan, where I'm from. And uh, did she? Uh, so that was the start of her career. Were, were there any of those laughing or the characters that she became so famous for later? Did she do any of them on on that first show? Well, what brought her to everyone's attention was she did a 
uh, a routine called uh, where she was a recovering uh, rubber addict who used to eat uh, eat erasers, you know, and and. That character, that monologue, got her on our show. She did it on our show, and she did it for Laugh-In, and they, I think they used it, too. But as for Ernestine and uh, some of her other characters, Edith Ann, uh, yeah, th- those, those, uh, she found those on Laugh-In. With us, she was just a sketch player and a talented comedian. There she was, but it's all we know. It's always the writing that makes them the, <laughs> the way that it is. And uh, just a quick, we're going to have to go for a commercial pretty soon here, but just a quick little thing about and i know you can't do this quick so we might have to wait for the after the commercial but the writer's room back then and your first writer's room was probably smothers brothers where you were on with steve barton and some other funny people i think uh um albert brooks's brother was on there too right the bob einstein rob reiner was on there too myself steve martin rob reiner uh lorenzo music who went on to create the new heart show in rhoda Uh, Bob Einstein, I think we said, and uh, the producer of the show were Chris Beard and Alan Bly. Alan Bly uh, did the Elvis comeback special in 68. It was a, it was a, just a great ensemble. Murray Roman, just a bunch of others. Great. We'll have to take a commercial, but we'll take a commercial, and then we get back. Kelly's got some questions, but I'm going to steal Kelly's first question and let you think about it over the commercial. Is I just want to hear what that writer's room was like, and, and you've been in writer's room since then, and what that magic is that you, you, that you see or you don't see when you go in a writer's room. When we return with the great Carl Gottlieb at Rick's Martini Bar. Swing on down to Ricky's place Where the girls are refined And the men have good taste and we're back at Rick's Martini Bar. I'm Kelly Maroney. I'm here with the wonderful Jerry McCarty. And today we have Carl Gottlieb as a guest. We're mid-interview. He's a writer, director, performer, producer, award-winning, award-nominated, award-looked-over, um, most famous for Jaws, as he calls it, that fish movie. Carl. Uh, <laughs> Seventh highest. It's the seventh highest grossing film of all time, adjusted for inflation. That's amazing. And the most interesting person you'll ever talk to, so I'm going to shut up. Carl, you were answering a question of ours a minute ago. Would you mind continuing? All right. Uh, Jerry, just before the break, had asked about the writer's room at the Smothers show. And it was a great writer's room because the Smothers had just inherited their show from their old school producers that had put them on the first two years. And they were now free to populate the writing staff with anybody they wanted so they got a bunch of young writers who they identified with no we had one old guy from radio comedy who was a bit of a drag but because he had and he, he was a funny guy in his time he had created um, uh, my friend Irma and Life with Luigi but those are radio shows from like I want to say 100 years ago, but it was, it was only 80. <laughs> exactly. uh, anyway, but the, the writing staff included uh, myself and Rob Reiner and Steve Martin and Bob Einstein and uh, uh, Murray Roman, uh, Lorenzo Music, who created the uh, New Heart Show and, and Rhoda and played Carlton to the Doorman. Yeah. And uh, let's see, uh, there's a, a Canadian writer named Paul Wayne. And the old-timer from radio that was brought in at the network's ex- uh, insistence was a guy named Cy Howard, uh, who was a pleasant enough guy, but he had a lot of old writer's rooms tricks that uh, that wouldn't work. For example, uh, 
he'd, uh, uh, he'd he'd participate in creating some piece of material, and then when we'd uh, preview it for the Smothers Brothers, you know, they, they say no, you know, the, not funny. We'll do something else. Sai would be the first one in the room to go. I told you it wouldn't work. <laughs> <laughs> he had a lot. He had a lot of moves like that, you know, is to deflect responsibility. Uh, but he did have a wonderful story about dating Hedy Lamarr during during the Hollywood era, which I can't repeat here, sadly. And I now that I think about the story and Psy, it might have been a function, uh, a, a, a fiction, a fictional uh, or embellished event. But it was a great writer's room, and writer's rooms in general can be hell and uh, also very rewarding when they, when they work. Uh, we always had, and I think most writers' rooms have a schism between the unmarried writers who can stay up all night and just order out pizza and Chinese food and work until dawn on the rewrite, and the married guys are going, excuse me, I have to get my kid to school in the morning, I have to walk the dog, my wife is going to kill me. And we're going, what if we just break the sketch, you know, we just get this one piece of material right, and then, you know, then we're there till 2 in the morning. So there's always, you know, there's that creative tension that when your family life rubs up against your professional life. Great. Well, Kelly, you've known Carol for a long time. Mm-hmm. So let's hear some questions that you have that you that you may want to ask Carol and put him on the spot here. Oh, I just ask him that all the time anyway. So there's nothing special about that. Um, I met Carl doing an episode of Leo called Leo and Liz in Beverly Hills, which was the George Burns Comedy Hour, and he and Steve Martin were wrote that. Yes, and that's how I met Carl. So my questions are: number one, if you had to pick only one of the things that you've done in your career—movie, television show, improv show, whatever it may be—that you are the most proud of, what would it be? And part two. What have you not done that you still look forward to doing? They're, they're kind of related. The The show I remember most was a live show when the committee performed at the University of Texas in Austin in a field house in front of 3,000 people, sold out. We had uh, filmed our L.A. show, and the film had been distributed nationally and had played for like 30 weeks in Austin before we got there. So when we hit the stage... 3,000 people, A, knew who we were, had seen the movie. They would applaud. If we did a sketch on stage that they recognized in the film, they would applaud the opening lines like you would applaud the intro at a rock concert when you heard a, 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 one of the hits coming. And in those days, we had a, a long-form improvisation that we worked at in our theater where we were comfortable called The, the Herald, which was a long-form improvisation that began with a couple of suggestions and then would run free form from anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes. Uh, but for concerts like this one, we would do a set show with improvisations inside of it, but we wouldn't do the Herald because that was too unpredictable and you couldn't be sure it would work. Well, the show was the best show we had done in a long, long time, probably one of the best we'd ever done. And it was like two two hours of just dynamite. And at the end of the show, they were screaming and cheering. They wouldn't let us leave the stage, and we had like five bows. And we just said, you know, they wanted an encore. We huddled and decided, what the hell, they they like us. You know, we probably won't fail too badly, even if we don't manage to do this correctly. Let's do a Harold. We'll do the free form. 
So we took some suggestions, and then we did the best Harold of our lives that ran 20, 25 minutes. So the whole evening was about three hours long, and everybody was wrung out and destroyed. And just, you know, decades later, I, I still meet people uh, every now and then and said, you were in the committee did you play ever play Austin, Texas? I go, yeah, there was, there was a show. And they say, oh, yeah, we saw your show. It was really good. And I'm touched because I have to tell them, you don't know how good we were <laughs> that night. That was the best we'd ever been. Wow. And it was an incredible performance. I still well up talking about it. Um, and connected to that, the one thing I haven't done, which I would like to do, would be Broadway. Live theater. Oh, you would be so good at Live it. theater, you know. <laughs> Knock, knock, knock. Five minutes, Mr. Gottlieb. Yeah. Overtures in the pit. Conductors in the pit. You know, here comes the overture. Okay, you know, ten minutes. Places, please. You know, all that backstage Broadway stuff. I wanted, I would love to do that. Oh, wow. See, I've learned something I did not know before. I have learned a lot of stuff I've not learned before. <laughs> but he would, be, he would be so great at that. The, you know, the committee, which was one of the great improv acts of ever, forever. And that... Training is perfect for Broadway, and oh, it's a shame that you have not been able to do that. And I feel so bad for live audiences that they have not been able to enjoy it. For Broadway needs you, Carl. You got to do something next season. There we go. There we got to write something. We got to write something. Something the sequel to Hamilton. We can do it. (laughs) So we have one more commercial, and we come back. We'll hear more interesting things with the great Carl Gottlieb when we return at Rick's Martini Bar. Swing on down to Ricky's place Where the girls are refined And the men have good taste We are back at Rick's Martini Bar with the great Carl Gottlieb. So many credits. Smothers Brother Emmy Award winner, Jaws, The Jerk. Caveman, one of my favorites, but so many great, great things, and an actor in so many great things. But uh, Carl Gottlieb, and I did not know that Kelly Maroney met Carl on George George Burns' show. George mm-hmm. Burns, an amazing person. I never met anybody that met, well, I didn't think I knew anybody that met George Burns, but now I've known Kelly for a long time. So tell me a little about George Burns. Oh, I never met George Burns oh, either. No, it was his, it, Carl's met George Burns. Carl, take it away. <laughs> uh, it was a half-hour anthology show called George Burns Comedy Week. And uh, George would host the show and introduce the material. And a different director and different writer would write an episode every week. Uh, Phil Alden Robinson wrote and directed. And, uh, Steve wrote and directed. I wrote and directed. Uh, John Cordy. Uh, John Landis. We had wonderful director, comedy directors doing the show. And... Uh, George would come in once every three or four weeks and do the bumpers and the intros for three or four shows at a time because he was frail at that time. And my mother-in-law at that time, who had worked with George Burns in vaudeville, would confide in me. She said, he's not as old as he says he is. <laughs> and my mother-in-law, by the way, lived to be 100. <laughs> and she was there. She, she toured when her act was billed over George Burns and Gracie Allen. Uh, and, and she said, oh, it was common knowledge in vaudeville that when George Burns uh, first hit the stage as a member of what was called the Pee Wee Quartet, 
because in juvenile acts were popular in vaudeville where they would some people who appeared to be underage oh look how clever these 12 year olds are 10 year olds uh, that's where he started and the peewee quartet was going to tour as all vaudeville acts had to and he was not yet 12 and even in 1910 there were child labor laws and you had to be over 12 to work on the vaudeville stage or in a factory or on a farm or any place. So he lied about his age. He added a year or two. He was probably 10 at the time. And he said he was, he was 12. He was an old-looking 10. <laughs> so he passed, uh, he passed for 12. So when uh, he was getting up into his 90s, uh, Edith, my mother-in-law, would say, Psh, he's not that old. He's, everybody knows he's 96. He's not, 90, he's not 98. He's 96. So we have a lot of aspiring actors and performers that listen to this show, and you've done so many things, beginning with improv. How would you say that informed your training? Did, did it start with improv and grow into writing and performing? Or how, how would you say, instead of having a formal training at a college or something, you learned through doing, how would you say the underpinnings of that went? Uh, I discovered early on when I started improvisation that the rules for successful improvisation are the rules for life. And if you follow them in your life as you do on stage, uh, it's hard to go wrong. Now, you won't run into people in life who are as cooperative or caring as the people who are sharing the stage <laughs> with you. But uh, if you listen and respond to what you hear, if you're staying in the present, if you're not projecting or writing the scene ahead of time so that the other person doesn't know what you're doing, um, you can have a very you know, enjoyable and profitable interactions with people for the rest of your life. And improvisation teaches that. Uh, I was always a writer. I always had a facility with words, and that kind of informed my improvisation. I could do wordy, parently educated monologues. Uh, you know, I, I could spin a web of words and dazzle them with bullshit, but... <laughs> Uh, that was uh, uh, that was helpful, and then later on when I wrote books and when I went on the road to promote books and and when uh, I started exercising all my writing muscles, still the laws of on stage improvisation applied. You know, you, you listen to yourself, you try to stay in the moment, you write what you believe to be true, you stay truthful to the moment in which you're writing. And as a result, you can have some success uh, in what one would not normally consider an improvisational field. Writing, writing is the opposite of improvisation. It requires uh, repetition, editing, rewriting, rewriting again. Somebody once said screenplays aren't written, they're rewritten. Um, that's true in my, in my experience. Uh, you can always write something a little better. The trick is knowing when to walk away. An improvisational stage, the audience's laughter and applause says, okay, that's it, lights out. Uh, in real life, uh, there's nobody on the light switch to plunge you into darkness when you've hit the high moment of the evening. Uh, but you, you realize that there are rhythms to conversation, there are rhythms to relationships, and they all echo the uh, pleasant rhythms and, and successful uh, outcomes of good improvisation. Uh, and and uh, I put a lot of that into a, a, a book I wrote, which I might as well mention because it is uh, recently published and useful to a lot of people. It's called The Little Blue Book for Filmmakers, and it's a primer or primer 
uh, a basic text for writers, producers, actors, and directors. So I wrote the Little Blue Book for filmmakers with uh, uh, Antoinette Attell, Tony Attell, who is a successful actor and teacher of acting and uh, at the college level. And the book started because she was teaching acting for directors because directors didn't really understand the process that their actors were going through. So she wanted to familiarize themselves with, with acting so that as directors they could be better directors because they could know how to talk to actors. And I said, gee, that's, you know, that's a good idea. And she said, it's amazing how little cross-disciplinary education there is. Even in film schools like USC and Tisch and Columbia and UCLA, uh, Carnegie, Northwestern, uh, directing department doesn't know what the camera department doesn't know what the writing department doesn't know what the producing department is doing and they all should be informed about each other's discipline so that's what the book is about little blue book for filmmakers whether you're a writer actor director or producer there's something in there for you uh, starting with little historical lessons and coming right down through the present era of digital communications and digital platforms and the multiplication of platforms like video on demand and every area of distribution that we're faced with now. The most I've ever heard is a director will say, so I thought I'd go take an acting class. And that's it. Or they're told, you know what, if you want to understand how to talk to actors, go take an acting class. That's the end of their advice. So this really is a needed thing. It's true. One hand does not know what the other one's doing. Well, Carl Gottlieb, such an honor to have you here, as always, to be in your presence. And uh, let's talk about your... To get a hold of Carl, you can follow Carl on Facebook at Carl Gottlieb, right? Carl Gottlieb on Facebook. You can find him there. Mm-hmm. And also, not only do you have the little blue book of filmmakers out, but tell us about your other books, please. Oh, well, the, the big book, the one, the one that keeps on giving, is uh, a book called uh, The Jaws Log, a book that was written back in 1975 when Jaws came out. It was revised, updated, and modernized for the 25th, 35th, and 40th anniversaries of the movie. There's a lot of new information. It's the best-selling book about the movie ever written, and it's available wherever books are sold and, of course, on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Uh, Look for The Jaws Log by Carl Gottlieb. My other writing efforts, uh, I collaborated with David Crosby on his two autobiographies, Long Time Gone, back in 1989, and since then, in 2002, when... So much had happened since the first book that we figured we had to uh, write another one. So the two David Crosby books uh, we share authorship on, and I'm very proud of that collaboration, too. Great. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Carl. And we have to make a new book. I I got the idea for your new book. Your new book should be Yes And, Improv Rules for Life. I will buy that book. So for the great Carl Gottlieb and the lovely Kelly Maroney, my name is Jerry McCarty. Please join us next week for another episode of Rick's Martini Bar. Cheers. Clink. Let's swing on down to Ricky's place Where the girls are refined And the men have good taste A subtle joke A touch of class Bored in a dog